Welcome to the Immersive Experience Network's Making Immersive podcast series, giving you the tools and insights into the making of all things immersive and interactive. I'm your host, Dr. Joanna Bucknell, and over the course of this Knowledge Bank series, I'll be having conversations with extraordinary creatives, production specialists, and makers who shape this tantalizing sector and the worlds that draw us into this form. In this, the first episode of IEN's Making Immersive podcast series, the discussion is going to focus upon creating large-scale shows. I'm joined by Fiona Porritt, a creative producer at L'Enfance Terrible and a creative associate of The Labyrinth. Miguel Hernando Torres Umba is a gecko practitioner, but also directed for Secret Cinema, L'Enfance Terribles and Rematch Live. I'm also joined by Andrea Salazar, who's executive director and co-founder at Darkfield and head of production at Punch Drunk. We'll be spending the next hour or so discussing how to scale up work, what the challenges are, what the opportunities are in terms of creating satisfying and innovative work for audiences, the practicalities of getting audiences through spaces and navigating production in large-scale venues, and managing the finances, specifically how working at scale impacts the financial decisions that you make from conception all the way through to delivery. Enjoy. So I wanted to kick off by asking my guests just to give a sense of their training, background and the routes that you've taken to kind of get to where you are and get to working in immersive, um, but particularly how you became involved in large scale work. So, Andrea, um, could I begin with you? Can you just give listeners a sense of your background and expertise, but also a little insight into how you got to where you are now? I guess I got involved in theatre when I was quite young, like kind of high school, doing like work experience, fell in love with it, and um, then studied production management at Central School of Speech and Drama. Uh, kind of, I feel like that was kind of quite a great basis of kind of production knowledge, um, but also just an incredible way of getting to know other strands. And uh, at the time, they used to have a partnership with Circus Space. So immediately touching base in London and getting involved with all of these uh, non-traditional uh, ways of uh, theatre making and experimental for me was like an eye-opener. Um, and then I was really fortunate to do work experience and then become production manager for Shunt. And so I kind of very quickly and very early, early on in my career uh, started kind of managing really large scale uh, non-traditional spaces and kind of making this incredible boiling pot of uh, kind of uh, artistic site specific work and constantly worry about toilet capacity and power, which <laughs> very soon you realize, uh, you know, need to go hand in hand with what we do uh, uh, when you do, when you take on a non-traditional space. Mm. Um, so I think from there on, like, my career has been really been, um, a, you know, a, a, a really fantastic uh, mix of site-specific converting spaces into, into kind of art spaces. And that's kind of where my passion really is like the non-traditional space to create uh, artistic work. Shunt is like a baptism of fire, isn't it? <laughs> challenging space, large-scale, yeah. unruly audiences as well. So, so you've been 
involved in that right from that first wave then really because Shunter right there at yeah the totally like after that it was quite interesting to then kind of like start working with Point Strong and go this is manageable <laughs> you know in comparison <laughs> uh, uh, but 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 yeah I was really lucky to kind of uh get straight get straight into it but that's where my passion was and I think as I say it was such a great time in in kind of I think uh opportunities for new talent that also Shunt was part of with the Shunt Lounge. Um, you know, I think we can probably go later into funding and opportunities. Yeah, no, but, no, we but, but it was will, yeah. but it was that sort of time of them being able to kind of go, wow, this is this is an incredible way of allowing um artists and work to be uh, created in these non-traditional spaces. Yes. And Fiona, I'd like to come to you next, if that's okay. Yeah, sure. Um, from from one um, vault dweller to another. Yes, mm. <laughs> we share. We have a shared experience there, which is very fun. Um, I I definitely came into working in theatre in general through that kind of very stif- stereotypical um, performing as an actor at high school. I went and trained at the Oxford School of Drama for a year and did a musical theatre course. Very much love performing and love love being an actor in that way and then um I wanted to do anything to get to London as stereotypical as it sounds (laughs) it felt like London was where all the theatre was at so um I looked at all of the universities in London and ended up going to uh, Brunel University um in northwest London and studied a theatre degree there um and I I didn't really know similar to you I had that kind of eye my eyes widening to all of these different kind of genres of theatre they had a lot of people um who were teaching us about postmodern theatre I heard the name Punch Drunk for the first time when I was there and I was like what you you can walk around a space and have a theatre experience so I was very much having my mind broadened in lots of different ways during that education and it was actually um while I was there, I, I went to Latitude uh, Festival, which was at the time uh, Tanya Harrison programmed an amazing spread of theatre there. And I happened to come across Les Enfants Rubler, who were performing um, an outdoor theatre show, which actually is sort of lesser known for the company, but we have a huge breadth of outdoor work that tours every year <laughs> yeah, yeah. alongside everything else that we do. Um, but I absolutely fell in love with the company. Um, and at the time, I think they were used to using immersive techniques before they even branded themselves as, as immersive theatre practitioners. Um, and 10 years later, um, I'm now still here as senior creative. Um, but my trajectory probably follows similarly to what Les Enfants were in that um, everything that we do, uh, we really want to focus on how we want to tell a story. Mm-hmm. Um, so we might be kind of more so known currently for immersive theatre, but we very much came from a stage show background, um, script and storytelling, uh, but always using quite uh, interesting techniques to tell stories so that you might find puppetry or live Mm. music or some sort of kind of interesting and innovative way to tell a story. So I think when um, the company directors, James and Ollie, started thinking up uh, how to tell a story of Alice in Wonderland, they thought, well, Surely you want to go to Wonderland, right? You don't just want to see that on a stage. You actually want to tumble down the rabbit hole and go on that adventure. Um, and that was really the catalyst that that for the last 10 years took the company into large-scale immersive. An idea that we took to the vaults has now turned into multiple other 
immersive shows in lots of different interesting spaces which I'm sure we'll go on to talk about. Yes absolutely thank you and Miguel your background is actually in physical theatre isn't it? you yeah. come from that very kind of discipline training space so yeah. can you talk a little bit about how you've kind of sure that's well are. I am I am a performer at heart that's what I do I'm an actor as well and and uh, I started as a, a young actor in Colombia uh, initially in carnival arts and, and street theatre which in a way then later transfers to working with audiences, like mm. large-scale carnival arts, parades. You're used to loads of audiences. So that was the first thing I did. And then when I moved to the UK, initially I learned some English. And then I went to study mime when you didn't need much English, but no, you did. <laughs> <laughs> so I did a training in corporeal mime, and that mm -hmm. was part of like something that I was already doing in Colombia, so the physicality made sense. It also made sense for me to be like coming from what I had done already in carnival arts, physical and also in the country, whilst learning the language, it made sense for me to learn this technique. And, and whilst working on learning and, and training in physical theater in, in corporeal mime, then I stumbled across people who were working with chant, working, working with secret cinema, working with the early kind of like movements that were going on. And I was just one day invited to come and secret cinema needed some performers to come and fill in um, for a day, 20 pounds, one pizza, come in, join. And I'm like, sure, I'll go. And, and in a way, uh, I went with a couple of friends from the school, just a, a friend of us was kind of very close to it. So we stumbled into the show and they were doing Ghostbusters the first time that they did Ghostbusters in 2009. And that was probably the fifth secret cinema that was already starting to grow. And, and me and, and my friends from the school, also some Colombians, we, have, we had lots of experience working with audiences in Colombia, like lots of interactive theaters and stuff and carnival arts. So in a way, it just felt really natural to be in this space interacting, playing with props, with using our physicality and just, and that seemed to have worked really well. Uh, and then Fabian and, and Matt Costain who were kind of the early directors, what, Fabian being the, the founder of Secret Cinema, they liked, uh, they liked the work that we were doing and they just kept calling us. And in a way it kind of started to become part of this ensemble of performers who kind of started to develop the, the Secret Cinema style in terms of performance. And that just kept rolling. They just kept rolling and it kept growing and then the next show was slightly bigger and then the next show was five days instead of one night and then I was part of that group and, and then the next show grew bigger and then I still was part of that cast. And in a way, I just became quite used to it mm -hmm. to the point that when the show, the, the company started to grow and they started to need other directors, it was sometimes hard to find the right person who would understand the style. Like we've, we've already developed a style, there's already some expectations and a new director might not quite fully be there. It needs a bit of that development. So I started to be asked to support the new directors, to assist them. And then that developed into, well, you do it. You, you, seem, to have, you seem to understand what you're doing. Um, and, you know, just from the experience of being a performer, being a volunteer, initially a volunteer actor coming to just take part of an experience to developing into being a consistent ensemble performer to then developing into being a performance director and then a creative director that's the that's the journey that took me to to work mm -hmm. on the big on the large scale shows and in a way since the beginning secret cinema since that one it was always large scale mm. and again that didn't feel dissimilar for me in terms of dealing with lots of audiences again from the experience of working on carnival arts of like being used to like okay every step of the way in a parade you having to be creating something new giving the audience something special so you kind of, I, I was used to that. So I kind of understand that kind of trajectory. Yeah. And that led me to that, to then 
And then the company kept growing exponentially. And then we did Back to the Future, 70 performers, 4,000, 4,500 audiences in the field, Star Wars and Moulin Rouge, and then all the big shows. Then I was already riding the wave with them to, to create those large-scale shows. And parallel to that, my performing career has continued. So I've also joined Gecko Theatre. So I've, I, I, keep, I keep doing both. I keep performing mm -hmm. and directing, performing and directing. Um, it's not the focus of, of this episode, but um, it's really interesting to see the, the threads through traditional theatre and the threads through that kind of carnival outside kind of like public space. So I'm just going to park that. I was, it's just what I was noticing from everyone talking. I'm like, mm. so interesting again that the theatre is so fundamental and, so, and such a catalyst at the heart yeah. of this. And I think that that's, that's significant. And, and people listening can maybe think about why. <laughs> so this is a massive question and I'm just gonna kind of throw it out there, so do jump in. But what are the main challenges of working at scale? And what are the aspects of it that kind of give you sleepless nights? So let's, let's start with the tricky stuff. <laughs> Get that out of the way. Get that out of uh, the way first. Um, I think, uh the, there's always a moment um i think when you're working at scale and you're often uh potentially renting a huge venue to put your show on um there's a lot of pre-work that has to happen um as well as the kind of more traditional things like script writing casting bringing the team together you're also uh, trying to work out the logistics of how, how the audience move around a space a lot of the time. Um, so we spend a hell of a lot of time working on spreadsheets at the same time as working on, on the script. Um, so the, probably the most sleepless night in the, in the whole kind of production process is that moment when it turns from page to stage. Um, and that kind of knowledge that you need to use the time in the space uh, to the best of your ability to mm -hmm. not just be building the set, but also bringing the performers in. Um, and it's a really unique way of working with performers um, because a lot, of, a lot of the time, I guess, on stage, the, the performer is sort of leading the drama and, and the, the tech is seen to be supporting the performer. Whereas actually um, in our productions, it's completely flipped around the other way. Uh, we have predefined how long the scenes will be, um, how much time they have to deliver different parts of the narrative. And actually it's the performers having to learn that kind of side of uh, it and, and really slip into essentially a sort of dance. Um, mm -hmm. So that, that moment of actually knowing, oh, I, it works on a spreadsheet. We've checked, you know, these audiences and we, and we have different audiences in the space which aren't meant to see each other at the same time. So we're, we're having to trust that the timings will work and people won't bump into each other. But there's always that kind of nervous mm -hmm. moment where, uh, where uh, you know, you have to test it. I think, I think what's, what's different uh, now, we're, we're currently building a, a permanent immersive theatre venue in Waterloo. Um, with a new venture called Labyrinth, where we'll be putting on Alice's Adventures Underground again. Uh, what's been really unique about this is the space is ours and it's currently there right now. So we're, we're, we're building at the moment. So actually what we have been able to do is go down there, not with performers, but with stopwatches, have different, <laughs> different people. I mean, it looks mental. If anyone saw us down in this basement, just walking around with a script muttering to ourselves, but it, it, it's, um, 
it's given us a really unique uh, luxury that we've never had before where, where we're actually able to really map out the show mm-hmm. uh, in a way that we haven't before. But it's definitely that process which I think can be mm. quite terrifying. And, and in theatre, you've already sold your tickets. You know when the first audience are going to be coming through the door. So, yeah. you know, I mean, that's why we all love it, though, as well, that kind of pressure to, to yeah. deliver. But it definitely creates... Uh, it's like an addition to dramaturgy because the dramaturgy is all about the story isn't yeah. it? and the engagement and the audience. And then it's that extra layer of, of not dramaturgy, but almost kind of logistics. Yeah. There, there is, I think this kind of work has logistics in a way that other work just doesn't have to think about those things. Absolutely. And there might be a, a stage show. Um, Ollie writes quite, quite a lot of our stage work and he would have the luxury of being able to come up with the idea, come up with the characters and, and almost sort of, sometimes deliver a first draft of a script which then we would all get round and start to think about oh wouldn't it be cool if we did it this way or that but actually in in immersive theatre you're you're actually working out well who who is available to say those lines at the same time as always making sure it it feeds the story as well so Mm -hmm. yeah it's completely there is a whole extra layer that has to work in tandem not as an afterthought yes so developed in at the same time Shall I go? Yeah, go for it. <laughs> Jump in. What gives me a sleepless night? I think, I, like, I, I almost feel like that's part of my job description. <laughs> but, you know, sleepless nights. Sleepless <laughs> nights will be part of your life forevermore. Um, in, a, in a wonderful way, I like, you know, I'm the, I, I feel like I'm the person that needs to ensure that this thing comes together, that, like, we deliver it in time and budget, and that for immersive experimental theatre it's kind of a lot of boxes to feel every step of the way from from kind of like looking around a building and thinking about licensing and planning permissions and neighbors um, <laughs> uh, and toilets and emergency exits uh, through to then the recruitment process through to the entire sort of health and safety process mm-hmm. back around to kind of coming to a table and realizing that you are 10 percent of a budget and then you need to cut things and 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 and, and through through to this sort of get out, through to leaving that space as you found it. Mm-hmm. Once everyone's gone for the party and going, all right, we're still here, guys. Um, <laughs> so I think it's kind of like a constant, which I kind of really love, feeling that you've problem solved something and mm-hmm. like hopefully everyone's happy, successfully made a happy team in that. Yes. And, and then on to the next kind of challenge. Um, I think though... If if you sort of ask me what do you feel that is the most constant thing that gives you sleepless nights, um, I think at the moment is recruitment and finding talent, uh, production talent, technical talent. Um, I think that's just uh, a, a mixture between, uh, I think, of an after COVID uh, kind of, uh, a, you know, knock on effect on our industry a mix sometimes with the feeling that maybe um, people are just not as uh, inspired to to kind of uh, be in in it. Um, we're quite small, aren't we, in Insular, and so there is a limited yes kind yes. of pool of talent. Correct, correct, correct. And like for <laughs> example, you know, we've got we've got a talent development uh, department at Punchstrand, you know, which I like uh, is one of the most beautiful things to kind of try to um you know spread the word and show uh, the younger kids that there's an alternative career path into this 
marvelous world and all young kind of uh, professionals. But um, but I think it's a sort of like constant battle to sort of try to find the right pieces of the puzzle when you're doing large scale work. You're not thinking about one or two people. You're thinking about 20, 30, 50, 60. Yeah. And risk and, as well. There's, there's yeah. a lot more at stake, isn't there? Totally. As well. So you yeah. want safe hands, yes. talent yes. too. And most of those safe hands have actually gone to an industry <laughs> that pays better. So I think we need uh -huh. to embrace the fact <laughs> that um, we need to be investing more in getting the new generation of just people. I, I think that's such a good point, actually. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people find their way in immersive and because it is so technically demanding, yeah. you learn so, so much. You, uh, you can take that anywhere. Yeah. Um, we have a brilliant director called Krista Harris, um, who's one of our associates. Um, she's now gone off working in the West End because the the system, the time coding systems that they use on the West End, that and the way that they, you know, Alice has the same actor numbers as as some of the biggest West End shows. Mm. Same with all of your guys' companies. Mm. So it it really does mean that from a technical creative side, you you can go and kind of conquer the world. But it does yes. mean that you do find that um, production talent and other thing they you know they do go off and kind of find other roles yes. uh, yeah I, I would add, like I, th I would add that it's also the expectations of the audience and the companies are now big yeah. so whilst the whilst with with the companies we work with and for in the past they've been developing and talent has been developing alongside now new talent needs to start getting a similar level because this, yeah. the productions are already at that at that speed and that and that yeah. size so so there's not much time for someone to learn and it take you, you need to get them to a good place very quickly. Same thing with actors. Like when you try to recruit not new actors, you're like, oh my God, I, I know exactly what I want, but also it's a whole different story. I can't just get the same person over and over <laughs> again. So yeah. let me just find someone new and that someone new, it, it won't get into that place into two, three shows down the line. So how do you, how do you speed that process? I think it's that's on, a challenge. It's on the job training, isn't it, really? Because there isn't really any other way to do that yet. And I say very much so, yet in a hopeful yes. way. Mm. <laughs> yes, no, but completely. Right. But I think there's a lot of, of the other bigger institutions. I mean, at least for production, you know, ABTT, like they are really interested to kind of understand how they bring experimental and immersive into into the practice. And so yeah. I think we just these types of forums hopefully help to kind of yeah, do more sure. to um, try to understand how we um, create more. Mm -hmm. kind of proper education in that way. And so where do you begin working at scale? You know, where does it start? Do you start with physical space and the journey or do you start with the narrative or is it bespoke to literally every project? Um, well, I think, it, I mean, again, it really depends on the company style. I think each company has sort of developed their own kind yeah, of way yeah. of approaching it. Um, in in the case of the shows that I've, I've experienced, it tends to it tends to be both hand in hand. Uh, the title, and there's the idea of three titles that could fit this space. So, in, for example, yeah, with Secret Cinema, I was like, yeah, which one of these three films would make sense outdoors? Mm -hmm. You know, we know these work in the outdoors environment. This wouldn't work indoors. We don't want it to be. You don't want a big yeah. festival type of show in a small warehouse. You want something that feels more intimate in the warehouse. So you're kind of constantly looking for the spaces. Once the space becomes available, then you go, okay, we've got these three ideas that can fit that space. Uh -huh. And then you start kind of like kind of marrying them. 
Um, so yeah, so we would have developed a number of ideas ahead of time, already probably created some, some decks, some pitch decks of what the narrative could be around that story, if it's to be one film or if it's to be in the case of rematch, which one of, the, of three different sporting events we can do. Um, this one is the one we like the most. We really want this to work. So also the other thing is if the, if the story is related to other, you know, someone has the IP rights somewhere else. So you also, do you have them available? Are they already on board with you? Uh, can you, with the, in the case of um, Rumble in the Jungle, the, the Muhammad Ali uh, brand was already behind it. So we knew we had those rights. Those rights were purchased, so we could just do that. That was already in our bag. So those kind of decisions start to kind of come together. And then at some point it just comes to like this is the one we want to make like yeah. this is this this is the story we want to go for um and now let's find the right people like the right team who would understand putting that together so for rematch it took them a while and they they tried with different creatives before to find all of those things together a pandemic came didn't let them do the show they came back again the venue fell through the creatives involved when were also already engaged so they couldn't do the next iteration so they had to start all over again find a new venue go around find new creatives all oh, those things seem to naturally finally kind of fall in place and mm -hmm. it's the kind of thing that maybe that's the way it needed to be and and therefore the right people were in place for that time and then and then with with rumble for example i knew they they had a concept they wanted to do this idea of of, of a Secret cinema-esque like world, world, which was quite uh, open, available, free roaming, with loads of agency for the audience, with the sporting event. And then there was an element that I had uh, plenty of experience in, but then the, the new element there was how do we stage this? How do we stage the fight? This is something we haven't done. No one's really done this. How do we stage mm -hmm. a sporting event that is theatrically engaging, that remains immersive, that... You know, so so then it's like then the process is let's just try to figure out this, bringing together all the elements from previous experiences, and I think that's where it's challenging for new new companies coming up. There's a lot already been done. It's how do you bring all of those shorthands and that learning to to try to come up with a new concept, and then fit it in the in the venue. And then for me, the venue would tell me a lot as soon as I step into the building. Then I start kind of figuring out what the journey is. Or from an audience perspective, what's the best way of giving them a consistent reveal, consistent sense of wonder as they as the experience develops, and if it's a big space like a warehouse, how can I split the space so that yes, they, I keep revealing a new a new space for them mm -hmm. as well as the narrative, or if it's a smaller space, what's the best journey, the least expected, trying mm -hmm. to kind of always go from the, the thing that would make less sense in a way, which something sometimes is not the best for producers or for for venue managers, they kind of want you to use the main door, the main toilet. Like you just, well, no, we want to go through the real one, and we yeah. want to go underneath. And we go through this. And we're constantly pushing and challenging uh, the practicalities of it. It sounds very precarious in a lot of ways, and there's almost like a, a serendipity to a moment when all of those different elements, kind of practical, logistical, come together before you can even then start kind of developing audience journey. Yes, I think. It's yeah, I, I completely agree. I think we have played that dance so many times where you've you've worked out the idea for the show, then the venue falls through, then you find another venue that doesn't fit that idea, and then you have that kind of conundrum of, oh, do we do we do we shelf that idea and wait for the right venue to come along, or is the venue giving us enough that it's adaptable enough for mm -hmm. the venue? Um, but then there's there's also certain instances where 
where the venue has to work. I think James would tell you that when we licensed Alice to China, I think he went through like over 10 different venue iterations because they were they were paying for a license of a show that had already had all of the, we weren't going to redo the kind of logistics of how the show worked. So in in a sense, it had to work. Saying that though, we're still incredibly malleable. We We would look at all of the... Uh, sort of rough dimensions of the rooms and literally like kind of Lego block, try and drop them into a different order. So you still have to be incredibly malleable, even with fully formed productions. And uh, and then there's all of the other kind of considerations of going, oh, how far out of London can we go? How far on the overground can we be? Do we need to be in central London to get the amount of audience that we need to sort of break even? Uh, so there's all of those sort of yeah. considerations as well. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so many um, different things and not huge teams either really managing no. that process. You know, most of you sat at this table are responsible for seeing that through, aren't you, from kind of inception to delivery. So Andrea, how about you? What do you think um, about in terms of what do you what what are the different elements that sort of have to come together and that you have to kind of manage? I mean, I think you put it really right. Like I, I before, I, I usually sort of say to people like, all the stars need to align for these <laughs> things to happen. Yes. And I'd say like, you know, for example, in the case of Punch Drunk, probably do a new mass show every eight years, and in between, we've seen so many buildings. And rewriting so many things <laughs> and have had a look at so many possibilities is like a constant bit of work together with looking at possibilities of re remounting work internationally or doing mm -hmm. new IP. Um, it's just a really fantastic uh, work of just staying open and positive to the to the possibilities. I mean, you know, from from my point of view, I am probably those kind of uh, bad news for everyone where you kind of look at a, a beautiful building and you go like okay it's going to take us a couple of million to bring it up to regulation guys is mm -hmm. this worth it so there's just kind of you know trying to bring a bit of a feasibility that where you kind of go we we just know that the audiences will arrive and need a toilet so let's try to be a bit pragmatic about some of the decisions yeah. that we are making from the outset so that not all of our budget goes into toilets. Like nobody wants that. So, <laughs> so it's just trying to kind of work with creatives uh, from the outset to, to kind of give, give the, the, the creative part the best chance to really like flourish. Mm -hmm. And at the same time kind of go, all right, I understand code, I understand regulations, let's, let's, let's kind of start working on, on that side of the story. And there's so many more things, isn't there, that you know, usually if you go to a theatre venue, they have the infrastructure and letter oh, yeah. code already kind of as a venue. So that must be a huge challenge of, I mean, is, is there a central place where you can, where you <laughs> understand what's required of you, what is legally required of you, what's health and safety required of you? Uh, not so much. I mean, I guess like there's just an, a, a great pool of people that you start um, collecting over the years mm -hmm. and that you just know what consultants to go to when. And, and in the meantime, you also start sort of learning uh, loads by, uh, hopefully not by mistake, like, you know, <laughs> not by messing it up. Uh, <laughs> But, but you do just kind of like need to learn on the job like constantly. Mm -hmm. Like in the same way that when you do an artistic, a new artistic project, you will learn about some new way of yeah. using a bit of technology or a 
transducer or a sensor or a magnet or whatever uh, to to create a solution. I think like that applies to the bureaucracy as well. <laughs> yes. Um, sorry. Go on. No, I just wanted to add. It's also the, the the vision, right? Like the the ambition and the vision of the company, both creatively and financially as well. You know, that always determines whether we want to make it a big scale show or we just want to make it smaller because there, there is also that, like we want to sell X amount of tickets because we want to make this amount of money or we want to make sure then, you know, that gives us for the next project. So it's also that consideration. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm yet to find an artist that wants to make it smaller, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I want to make it smaller. Let's talk. I was, that's one of my points. It's like, just, you know. If there were other things that would just literally roll out of sight, would you just get there and just be like, are there like consistent things you would be like, no. And are there any kind of consistent things where you're like, this is what we always kind of like hope for or like, need. Like asbestos. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Uh, air, air handling system. You don't want to be paying for that yourself. Mm -hmm. And is it about that? Is it really about budget then? Is it about, do you have a sense of how much of the budget you want to spend on kind of logistical site? things and then how much you want to free up yeah generally yeah then I think there's always like also a bit of a conversation usually with the landlords or the, mm -hmm. the people that are like activate either activating the area or mm -hmm. or that might not want to you know I, th I think there's just a lease process negotiation in that like first stages of the sort of like uh, work mm -hmm. um so but I think um, a big factor that goes into it is how permanent the show is going to be as well, because that part of the budget will grow if you're building a permanent venue, for example. Mm -hmm. So everything that we're doing um, at Labyrinth in Waterloo is the thought, well, we, we know we've got the lease for 15 years. So we're putting Alice's Adventure Underground in there at the start, but we know that by putting in the toilets and the air handling system, they're not going to change mm -hmm. when we change inevitably change the show in a few years' time. Yeah. So in that instance, it feels like it's a worthwhile investment. However, if you know that you're just coming into a space for a for a summer or for a couple of weeks, are you, we just would not be wanting to touch any of those parts of infrastructure. Yeah. You just would not make the budget work if you mm -hmm. were having to think about things like toilets on top of yeah. everything else because it. It's so sad. It just makes you feel like you're dropping money into totally. a pit that no one ever sees or appreciates. Mm -hmm. Whereas when it's spent on a piece of beautiful set or a, a puppet, it feels really worthwhile. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Sounds really weird. I but. think location that you mentioned earlier on is uh, is a really good yeah. uh, thing to think about. But there's there's probably a, like a beautiful list of. Um, <laughs> Yeah. There's also the flexibility of the space, you know, creatively speaking as well. Mm -hmm. You go, you know, how flexible is this venue? How many how many real possibilities I have in the space to play with different ideas? Or if I'm too restricted when developing an idea, I'd rather go for a venue that gives me more flexibility, either mm -hmm. because of permits or because of the way the, the, the venue works, the building is in itself or the restrictions totally. or how much we need to fix the roof. If there's too much of that, you go, well, also creatively, that doesn't give me much space to play. So I'd rather yeah. use somewhere different or maybe just wide open so that then I can put what we want to put in there. Because, I mean, ultimately, it's all about doing something creative and pushing that side. So we want to allow for as much flexibility. And we're also already dealing with a style of theatre that is in itself looking to push forward and, and to 
keep challenging the way we deliver audience, uh, a show to an audience. So mm-hmm. if we then start becoming too restricted, then it, it loses its point. Mm-hmm. You know, the point is that we are reinventing and we're constantly challenging how we create. So it has to allow that. That is key. The space doesn't allow it. If the production doesn't allow it, let's look for something that gives us that flexibility. Mm-hmm. It's so interesting that space seems to be so central and getting all of those things in place. So once all those things are in place and you're kind of like, you're like, this is a safe place. People can go to the toilet. People will be able to breathe. <laughs> I feel very comfortable with that. Where does then the process begin? I know like for Leon Fonce Tarib, it's very traditionally driven in terms of script. Ollie is a, is a playwright effectively, but also how do you manage the audience journey? How do you start designing the audience journey once all of that safe kind of stuff is in place? Or is it different for every single project? I think it can <laughs> be different for every single project. But I think I think we probably have a process where, yeah, it, it starts with the story. Mm-hmm. And maybe Ollie or and, and Co might write a few kind of key scenes that we know serve the beginning, middle and end. But actually, a lot of our scripts in their infancy, they look more, they kind of look a bit more like film and TV scripts where actually there'll just be a scene dropped in there that will explain what the audi- what happens to the audience and, and who mm-hmm. they meet and what they feel and what they learn. And then that will all get tested. I mentioned spreadsheets before. We use, we use um, not with all of our shows, because again, it's what serves the story, but I think we're quite known for the sort of audience entry system where we send smaller audiences through the show in usually about 15 minute um, mm-hmm. intervals. Um, so in Alice, for example, there's an audience of 60 that go in every 15 minutes. That happens 11 times a night, which uh, means we can facilitate 660 people going through the show. But actually within the show, they also get different choices and end up for about three quarters of the show actually split into a small group of 15. Mm -hmm. But you can imagine that um, if there's four different routes going through, that means that um, Ollie and Anthony Spargo, who wrote Alice, they uh, have to write four different scripts. So when we do the cast read-through on the first day, we're there for hours because we, we go down that one route, read that in its entirety, and then go straight back to where they split again, read that one all together. That's so important because the whole cast and production team, they have to understand every single route. Um, But it it really is a testament to, I think think as script writers, they have to be so much more malleable um, because if, if we then check our lovely spreadsheet, which says where every single performer is at each time, and that actor is not free and we can't change something to make them free because they are in another space delivering another scene, um, they will have to sort of change and and mould the creative. So mm-hmm. but I find that really interesting and exciting. It's really fun for me who sort of usually works in a dramaturgical way. I mean, we all get really involved. Um, it's it's not just the kind of writer ha- holds all of the, the keys um, and we can be changing things right up until press night as well it's kind of like the audience is present with that before they're even kind of there yeah isn't it that they're, they're they are they're a force yeah that impacts on that creative yeah. process I think yeah yeah for, for me they are the hero of the story like the way I the way I see when making immersive or the way I kind of develop this or for the shows that I work is I think every every art piece, a performative art piece, has um, a main artist at its core. And, you know, a film is the director. The director would choose what the final cut is. And 
And then on theatre, I think, is the actor. We make the choice of the timing of the delivery, even though we've done rehearsals. At the end of the day, what I'm doing on stage is what I'm doing on stage. Um, but I think for immersive, for me, the main person that I look after is the audience. They are the hero of the story. They are the ones I want at the end of the night to have gone, I went through this, this, and this, and that. Just as much as you do when you travel around to another country. The country is the same. The people in that country is the same. But you have your own story, depending on what you went to do. So I want, I want to create that sense for the audience. So when, when, when the project is ready to be done, the first thing that we do or I do is writing a top-line creative plan. So in a way, what's the overall arching? What's the overarching idea? What's the experience we want to take the audience from beginning to end? In a way, mm -hmm. not, not much detail in it, really like what's big, what are the big moments? What is, what's the sense of it? What's this emotion that we want to evoke and, and the senses and what things we want to create in this, in this show? So it's a top-line creative plan, which then gets thrown around and approved or not. And once that's done, then we go into developing the creative plan, which is fleshing out those ideas to really understand what those ideas are like. Again, not we don't quite get, or in my experience, haven't we haven't quite got there to scenes or character or fixed characters yet. There is obviously, if we're working on a story, well, the main characters will definitely be there. But we're thinking about the journey that the audience are going through and how we open in the story in all directions. So not just following the main character, but we know what's the secondary character in that film or, or what that promoter was doing when the fight was happening. You know, what else is going on? How can we then open it sideways and you know, upside down? Like we're really opening the story in many directions um, and putting the audience in there. What's, who are the audience in this journey? Are they mm -hmm. travelers? Are they just part of the Hill Valley Festival? in 1955 or they all like boxing associates that come into Kinshasa to observe and they happen to be up to also journalists like really important to decide in the, in the shows that we do who are the audience in this what's what's their journey and what's their character um, and once that creative plan is more developed and that's the creative that the plan that the other departments start using to to create design music costume all of that then there is a performance plan, which is then that performance plan becomes the, okay, let's just start breaking down how many actors do we actually have, how many scenes do we actually create. Mm -hmm. um, and in my experience, we don't create scenes yet. The scenes will be developed with the actors in the room. So there will be like place, like there will be hero moments. There will be like the main moment where we definitely want everybody to come and watch this bit. There's the scenes that definitely have to happen because you definitely have to have Dirty dancing lift. So it has to happen. You, know, you have to. You definitely have to sing your song from Mulan Rouge. You have to have those moments. But then, um, but then in the development of the performance plan, then you then look at timings. Then who are what many? How many rooms do we have? How are they timed or not? Some shows we've done as well. They're very well timed. Others are really open, and we know we have flags in the space. But also in between, the actors have loads of flexibility. Um, and so that opens up and then it goes into rehearsals and in rehearsals I get even more fleshed out because mm -hmm. the actors are going to come up with further scenes, further development of all of that. So it's just a cascade of development that uh, to me goes all the way into the first week after press night, even more so. Like the show doesn't quite make it fully, it's not fully mm -hmm. formed yeah. until even, you know, even press night is not quite a thing. It's like, <laughs> sure, but I still have another, I need another week because now we have an audience. Mm -hmm. Until we have an audience in the space, we have no idea whether how the show works, how the flow works, but it's actually landing. Like, you know, sometimes, you know, spend so much writing those spreadsheets and those scenes, and then you suddenly mm -hmm. go, that scene is really boring, that doesn't work. And you mm -hmm. spend hours thinking and developing that mm -hmm. scene, but actually, 
or it's not the best. It's not. It's not even that it's not. It's boring. It's just not suited to to creating the experience or something else. Or an actor suddenly when you know had a struck of like God in him <laughs> or her, and is creating a beautiful scene that is making everybody come to them. So mm-hmm. it's like okay. That means I've got three scenes running with no audience. What do I do? <laughs> do I just, how do I help balance this? Maybe I bring that down from those two scenes and then put them in another. So I'm constantly then shifting to make sure the balance of the show works. Um, it's until- so interesting, though, because the way you talk about how you develop the scenes within the rehearsal process, going back to what we were talking about earlier about finding the right people, the right people. Mm-hmm. If, you know, you really need those people to show up and, and have those act of God moments to to, uh, to come and play and develop with you. So Oof. so it's so important. It's just hugely collaborative, isn't it? And even with the audience, like you said, you never really know what the show is or feels or looks like until there's people living through it. And, and then again, there's that whole sense of readjustment. So again, that's quite precarious. And there must be that moment on that first time when audience come in where you just kind of hold your breath the first time real kind of people <laughs> enter that space. How about for you, Andrea, as well? Um, in terms of like audience, how, how do they sort of feature in the process? Well, yeah, I mean, massively. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's the, the amount of changes that we've had to make to shows once you push the audience in and that you're like, okay, that was a great test. We need to cancel two shows <laughs> and we need to rebuild this entire <laughs> section and relight this entire section and redo this entire section. Um, yeah, I think I think I completely agree. It's just, it's brilliant to have experience on on the ground that can kind of spend hours planning and and try to do as many R and Ds as possible. Try to do as many sort of previews, mark up the space, and walk it through and invite people for a beer afterwards, uh, <laughs> so that you can kind of have a sense of how they might react to that movement or timings might work. Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, research and development uh, or trials is one of the most like incredible things to have in a budget line. <laughs> yeah, uh, to really just go like we will need time to experiment the things that we haven't thought about that are going to be issues. Um, so yeah, champion of R and D. Um, I think though, just going back to the creation process, I feel though that for for us we are a lot more uh, space and design led maybe. And like yes. we obviously do, you know, we have a source uh, material and there's an incredible mm-hmm. amount of work on the content, but the, 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 the lighting, the set and the sound mm-hmm. really kind of grow with the story and with what we are putting in. And, the, you know, we really want audiences to discover the story through the smells and the sound and the lighting. Mm-hmm. As, and the detail that they found in a little draw that they found by themselves, whether it's la- uh, as mm-hmm. well as um, all of the performative layers. So I think that's that's kind of one of the like things that I love the most about my my role at Punch Drunk that I like get to think about so many of the layers that people mm-hmm. are gonna be able to experience. Because that free roam is, is slightly different, isn't it? It's the, yeah. it's the way it's the way that that hermetically sealed aesthetic space yeah. becomes a character in itself correct I yeah. guess and yeah then, and, and then that's incredibly up exciting to, up to audiences how they yeah navigate yeah. because you're not driving them through yeah I mean you have that kind of narrative thread the narrative totally. thread of course that, that will run through it the audience I think you control audiences yeah, absorbing so many less. other ways yeah. yeah yeah um very quick question actually is 
that's so much work. And people listening might be like, good Lord, that's so much work. How do you do? So in terms of time, I mean, how long does it stay, take from going, I've got an idea to audience coming through the door? What, what's, is there a kind of like a usual sort of timeline? No. <laughs> oh, it can really depend. You, you could be sitting on an idea for a couple of years. Um, or, you know, we actually, we, we collaborate with a lot of brands and do quite a lot of brand activations. Mm. And from knowledge of some of those in the past, we could get a call eight weeks before um, and still really push ourselves to make something quite, you know, a full on, yeah. we call them like miniature immersive shows, even if they might happen once. Uh, we love to use them to sort of test out things that we want to do in our in our work as well mm-hmm. um, because we've been given this exciting budget and, and the short time frame means that you can just make decisions and, and really push yourself and go for it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think in terms of the, the more permanent shows, I do think the, the venue question, yes, maybe there is a kind of, a timeline that you'd set out once that venue is 100% secure but it really it really depends you might also be thinking well if I'm doing something outdoors that's got to hit in summer so I know I've got to wait or oh January is an awful time to open uh, mm-hmm. so you're also working with your marketing department as well to sort of make sure that that lands in the right way um you know previously we'd love to get tickets on sale maybe even a year beforehand but actually buying trends have really changed. People are booking a lot last more last <laughs> yes. minute, as we all know, um, which is terrifying. But it also means that you could also have a shorter time frame and announce a lot a lot later on, which yeah. I guess is good in other ways. Because traditional theatre, even like in the West End, they have really short rehearsals now. You've got probably, what, a four week for, for once performers get into the room. You know, what, four weeks? A, a luxury and two weeks is often a standard not with you like dancing and singing and musical stuff is, is a bit more mm-hmm. has a bit of a bigger timeline but is there a crunch point where you kind of is it the moment when the cast come to be like we have four weeks till we open or, or is it still a bit more kind of nebulous I think for us it's quite <laughs> set like we do have like uh you know when when we take on like a large case show you know you've got a, like a a year and a half plan kind of thing that mm-hmm. you've sort of like tried to map out or, or whatever that is. Um, you know, I think we've we've now maybe become a bit more like we cannot do it in that time. Like knowing that you can't do it that quickly rather than knowing how long it will take you to yes. do it. You know, somebody is like, oh, can you do this in three months? You're like, no. What about six? Let me check. Um, so, so, yeah, I think... I think uh, yeah, no, no, I, I, I think you, you, you do know your, your, you, you kind of can chart. Yeah. Uh, of, of <laughs> here's the period of build and here's the period of rehearsal, mm-hmm. and then probably you start then having to. Yeah. I didn't answer what gives me a sleepless night, and I think this <laughs> yes, is what, yes. in my experience, has given me a sleepless night is that the, the, the shows that I've made have been made in very short amount of time. Rumble was six months from when I joined and when I started writing the creative from zero because we didn't use anything from the previous developments. We didn't have a building. So even even after I was already on board writing the top line creatives and the creative plan, the building was not confirmed until a couple of months later. So I was still waiting to adapt <laughs> the creative vision into whatever building came wow. 
came along. Wow. And then once the building came, it was just like, go, 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 go. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, from six, six months from when I joined to opening night. That, so that is a very small amount of time to do everything. And in that sense, what it means it's a big show. So the bigger the ship, the harder it is to steer. And there is no R&D, <laughs> although we did an R&D for the staging. So I, that was the thing I learned from not having done many R&Ds with, with previous shows before. Uh, similar scale of time, just go. So the ideas have to really work very quickly. So you have to, that is very, that's scary. Because yeah. you're right, like if you're telling them we want this stage designed this way, that you, there's not much more room to play afterwards. And if we're not R&D or having enough time to develop it, your idea has to be the one. And if not, then you have to be able to make it work. So like to to make decisions so quick, with such an amount of pressure. And the more the time passes, the more audiences, like not audiences, sorry, crew, people, people wanting answers. Do we want that light? Do we want this set design? What what image you want in the poster? Like all of that information is, you, uh, in my experience, has had to be answered in such a small amount of time at the same time. Now, you know, still developing posters whilst also writing characters and auditioning and also talking to the composer, all mm-hmm. of it. So. In other in other versions, you write the show and then you have the script and then then from then you work. Whilst in my versions, it's been like a similar amount of time. Like at the same time, things are happening. So yeah, the scope of time has been really small. However, once you set your opening date again, because it's build independent, is that's your opening night. So you work backwards. You go, okay, we have four weeks. We have five weeks of rehearsals, and that's the amount of time we have to put it together. And within that, you have to fit all your tech rehearsals and you have to fit all your like. And then the feet up of the venue. So basically, then then you work backwards. But you know you you know how long you've got a building for, and you have to work within the the parameters of that lease or that, mm-hmm. and that you've got your building. So then you work backwards. And yeah, I wouldn't recommend doing it in six months, really, to anyone. <laughs> and, I, and I'll try to not do it again. But you know, once when a project comes and it's exciting, you kind of go, Don't sure, sure, I can. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, it's not the best for you. So, and everyone's sold. I think that the challenge with that is, of course, in that, you know, in such an amount of pressure, time, um, everybody would break. Someone would break, like, emotionally. It's, and it's not ideal to create things that also end up being taxing on people's emotions yeah. and that you might not be able to look after people in the, in the best way. And I think that's a pitfall. In, mm-hmm. in, in creating these things is that sometimes in the, in the urge to create something innovative and fun and different, we, we sideline the, the looking after people whose development is important for, for the future. For, you know, some, some people yeah. we're talking about probably don't even want to come back to work. Yeah, you want them to come event. back. You want but them to create yeah. an environment where they come and perform in your next show. Or, oh, yeah. yeah. And, then, and, and if they had a hard time, they go, no. Yeah. Like, it was like horrific. I worked so many hours. It was so stressful. Directors were stressful. Producers were stressed. Everyone was really stressed. I don't want to put myself in that again. So that is something that I think, you know, yeah. the more we can carve the time and the, to develop it, to make it mm-hmm. properly yeah. and keep everyone a good experience, I think that's something to But I think sharing, for. like moments like this of sharing practice, sharing concerns, sharing challenges will start to open up that discourse and also start to look at, you know, pragmatically as well as how do we, how do you fit that? into that structure. So the, the next thing I'm going to ask about is kind of like money, really. Um, a year and a half, potentially with no audience coming through the door yet, is a long time to not have that kind of revenue coming in. So what kind of, how are the, how are these kind of large scale shows bankrolled effectively? Kind of what, what's the finance model? 
the bees? Uh, I mean, simply from us, we we very much adopt a, a like a West End commercial investment model. Mm-hmm. So actually, there are so many similarities to how we're pitching uh, our immersive theatre shows as, uh, and especially as we're 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 now developing a permanent venue and a permanent venture. We are very much pitching it as um, as a West End immersive theatre show, mm-hmm. um, and that is that is kind of a good language to I guess speak about when you're speaking to investors who are already investing in the West End, getting them to kind of understand. Talking about making uh, decks earlier and audience audience journey that is as important for talking to potential stakeholders as as well as briefing your creative team Mm -hmm. Uh, but then saying that some of our immersive uh, work has come from commissions so we we were commissioned by Kensington Palace to make a immersive theatre show in in the palace um, which was on in the evenings after I I guess the more sort of like uh, tourist they've got their kind of day daytime really lovely exhibits in there in, in the spaces and we were sort of given the space in the evening and and I guess how they justified that commission is that they really wanted to diversify their audience. Yes. I live in London. I'd never been, to, I'd never even thought to go to Kensington Palace because no. I think it's just on that list somewhere of uh, really beautiful places that you go when you're visiting as a tourist. Yeah. Um. So I I loved their ambition of coming to an immersive theatre company and saying actually we want we want a, a different audience to come mm-hmm. come through. But yeah, that was that was a lovely moment where we were you know. Gave it, given money yeah. um, and the palace were amazing actually because that that show closed uh, because of COVID unfortunately I think we did yeah. a week or two and we just pressed Aww. and then we you know one person had to isolate and then the whole you know oh as it God. did for the whole of the industry yeah. came crumbling down but they were incredible they they paid every single um, person that we got on board for the entire run wow. even though even though um we had to close early, so, so that is, yeah, that is quite a traditional theatre model, then, isn't it? That kind of idea of investment, yeah. and commissions as well. Yeah. That that's, and I know also there's been access it to public funds as well in the part, like yeah, way back yeah. in the day. I, and we still we still very much um, apply for project grants with the Arts Council for yeah. our stage work as well. That's a huge part of yes, what we of do. Course. We uh, as a company, we were supported by the cultural recovery fund through covid yeah. and that that really saved us and we well, do a lot we, of family shows yeah well, don't you that's yeah. been work that engages like a really broad range yeah. of audience and we've got a brilliant engagement strand which um we're currently looking at applying for funding for which sits really alongside the commercial theater model mm-hmm. and, we're, and we're doing all we can to sort of Ben, that side to benefit from the more kind of commercial model that we're um adopting with immersive mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, Miguel, how about, you know, you're saying six months tight schedule. What was the kind of um, funding model that enabled that? It's all, it's all private investment. Mm-hmm. It's, all, it's all private investment based on, which again, that determines numbers, right? And determines your budget in terms of, okay, we, want, we need to get the X amount of people through the door for this amount of time in order to break even and or start making some revenue. In, in the case of Rematch, they... They're going for a long-term development in terms of a company. Richard Ayres come from having developed, having had a few companies in the past, so he's got he's got confidence in in uh, in time being the way of that the company will grow. Uh, so we know we now have a product. We have a show that was creatively successful. 
um, and then now that, that product can be then put forward and also rematch started without having a, a, a following a massive following base so in a way was just trying to put something big that called a lot of attention yeah that's very scary <laughs> and then you know hope that that attention then will give it a, a, a momentum yeah. and I think that's where we are it the show created that momentum that attention it brought a lot of attention from different people from audiences from different backgrounds mm -hmm. it's, the, it's the first time I see such a diverse group of audiences it was just really great to see an adult show with families and prams and kids it was just really it brought mm -hmm. the, a group of audiences that normally wouldn't come to mm -hmm. to either to immersive or to even boxing so like yeah, that was the other thing yeah. brought sports fans and brought like theater fans and traditional th and music fans because we had a you know a live concert as well so like it brought loads of people into it so that was a good mm -hmm. so having that it means now the company has something to you know something to hold on to and look forward into the future in terms of continuing funding the yes. next work. It's, it's challenging, isn't it? And, it and is. how to, and it, it often dictates numbers and then that, of course, then dictates the shape of the show. And how about for Punch Drunk? It's kind of, you know, there's a large numbers, but also a, a really long time before. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think like we are in. quite lucky to place ourselves in a way that like we've got their international work running at the same time so yes, you know the yeah. company can kind of be of a cushion in that uh yeah. we've got a great reputation of course of so course, yeah. brands want to work with us brands want to sponsor us so there's yeah. there's investment there's also you know brands uh you know literally sponsoring us and uh yeah it's it's, it's we we definitely in the commercial side of the company we definitely stick to commercial avenues to mm -hmm. sort of sponsor the shows and, and you know, then, then any public. And very funding. quickly for people who are kind of listening and thinking, well, okay, so what's kind of sort of the percentage? What, what do you, what's your capacity that you have to hit every night sort of usually to break even? Do you have a kind of idea? Because I know in the West End, they operate off a particular percentage, don't they, of how they do that? And I was wondering if, it, or if there isn't, is it different factors that kind of go, this is our <laughs> minimum audience to break even? Yeah, I think, I think short answer is we probably, again, operate a, on a West End model, which sometimes can be around 50, 50%. Yeah. But there are so many sort of other factors mm -hmm. at play. Could, are you benefiting from using the space in another way? Um, we're looking a lot more into how uh we can we can have a sort of always on approach to our venue so yes maybe there is a a kind of more traditional immersive show with performers happening in the evening but actually we're doing a children's version of Alice in Wonderland in the daytime that is also mm -hmm. creating revenue yeah. um and then with having the space always open we've we're also now thinking about food and beverage and and all of that side so mm -hmm. having a restaurant which is selling a pre-dining experience and then a bar that the show conveniently spits you out into at the end of the night <laughs> and you might um the labyrinth's uh, license is is until 2am on a thursday to wow. saturday so you know there's really a thought of trying to capture your audience and keep them there for the entire Mm -hmm. night not just the show and, and all of that of course helps with revenue yeah of yeah. course and I think that that's something that I've, I've noticed across all of the different types of work is it, it's a diffused revenue stream mm -hmm. isn't it it's, it's never just tickets 
that can fund these shows. There's, there's got to be. I think it's incredibly important to diversify, but to do that, you need to be thinking about it from the outset. You can't be like halfway through the show or opening night and then being like, we should also have daytime activity. We should also create <laughs> events. Like it actually needs to be part of your business plan and your forward planning and kind of embedded into the, the kind of operations of how this is going to roll out from the outset. And I think, again, this is just something that we just try to be incredibly aware of. Like whenever you're like developing a project, especially an artistic one, um, you are so literally immersed in the nuts and bolts of this one thing. And it sometimes takes a little bit of a bit to kind of step back and be like, wait a minute, there's all of these other things that need to happen. And all of these mm -hmm. need budget, but they are investment into diversifying the project and creating yep. more income. Um, yeah. No, I don't know how long. Um, we, we are, we are definitely closer. heading towards end to of time. End. So I was going to ask kind of one last thing really, which is for folk who are listening, is there like a tip, one tip or a trick that you really think would be useful to share with people who are thinking about making large scale work? Um, I would say, ask yourself if you want to scale up and make something big because it's cool and exciting or, or, or is it more from a place of serving the story that you want to tell? Um, because you could end up kind of maximizing your space and your numbers and then completely losing your audience's attention, not being able to serve your story. Mm -hmm. um, so I think you really need to be always kind of questioning yourself in that respect. I think another um, thing that we've touched on as well is is about really having a core member of your team who has that that logistical brain as well as the creative brain who is in every single conversation always sort of banging that drum. Yeah. Um, and another thing that we've not touched on as much is that that also the we we all know that immerse the word immersive is is still. Uh, I mean, it's now a real buzzword, but it's it's still a real kind of growing form where our audiences uh, aren't aren't sure what it is anymore because it is being used in in such a way. So again, I think we always make sure that there is that core member of the team who is as much within the roots of the marketing mm -hmm. and the press as they are within the creation of the show. And and like you said earlier, those things need to work in tandem and. Uh, there's so much uh, education that we still need to uh, give our audiences to to kind of convince them or, or get them to understand what they're even coming to see. Um, that would probably be my stuff. Brilliant. Thank you. Miguel, did you want to? Uh, yeah, I would say don't scale up too quick. Mm -hmm. I would just say really, really develop. I think that the success of the companies we work and we work with and the companies that have uh, had level of success is that they started with the smaller shows and it took a number of years to get to that place of going, okay, this is a big production and we can hold those productions. And even then, those are challenging. And I don't think you need 15 years to grow, but 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 you do need to really hone you, the shape of your show, really understand the story you're telling and the, the difference of your, your style, because obviously you, there are so many different versions now, but really hone that and then, and then let that scale. Like I think mm -hmm. that is, I think I've seen a number of uh, producers and people wanting to get right up there from the offset. And you're like, we, we, 
wasting an opportunity because also every time we do a show that is not paying off for the audience, it's the audience that's going to be less likely to come back. Mm -hmm. So if the show doesn't, because it's an investment for a family or for someone to go, I'm going to pay 60 60 pound tickets or even 45 pound tickets when they don't know what it is, when they're taking a risk and then you deliver something that is not quite that, they're not going to come back to another immersive show. They're going to think it twice. So really hone that, you know, take a couple of years to hone your shows in a good manageable scale before you start growing up. Mm-hmm. And then and then that that would be great. We need more more companies in the spectrum to keep that going. But also we need quality work that is delivered at a standard that is already been set. Otherwise the industry is gonna wobble because people don't go back if they don't like it. And then we end up having struggle in trying to get the audience back it in. It matters, doesn't it? This it is the matters, thing is yeah. everyone if everyone's making quality work, then it benefits everyone because if someone goes to a bad immersive experience and they've paid sixty, hundred quid or whatever, they won't come back. And that that affects all of us. I think some people think that the same company is putting on every single show as well. <laughs> yes. Especially yes. especially if it's in the same venue. Yes. The amount, because the vaults yes. uh, now has had many immersive theatre productions in it. Yes. The amount we see on social media where people are saying like shows that are not our shows are our shows. And so it, it's, we all have a duty to each other Yes, to, I agree. Yeah, deliver, um, yeah, in a really considered way. <laughs> Andrea, do you have a tip for um, folk listening? I think just talk to the people that are doing it already. Like, uh, I, I think quite a lot of us have started from, you know, the kind of rubble and putting it together <laughs> with masking yeah. tape. And, like, there's been just so much learning that yeah even though maybe the kind of like formal education is not out there for everyone to read the kind of textbook of how to do this there's actually an incredible amount of people that would love to share knowledge and would love to tell you some kind of crazy good experiences and crazy bad experiences of Mm -hmm. things that you would have like might want to avoid doing some mistakes that you can avoid uh, uh, running into if you just just talk to other people so if you if you want to do something out there and you have a bit of a plan and you know of a company that you might admire, then like, why not reach out to them and see if they might be happy to have a coffee? And that's that's something, as someone sort of been involved in that and scholarship um, over many years now, everyone is, is open. Everyone that's seen is genuinely approachable and willing to knowledge exchange. And so this is, again, part of that and sharing the more we share our knowledge, our experience, our tips and our tricks and the ways that we do things, the more we'll grow and the more innovation that we'll see. And so thank you so much. For, I know you're all very busy at the moment as well in, in the thick of things. And so I really appreciate you taking the time to come and share your knowledge and your experience with us. And there's like a thousand other things I could have asked and would like to ask. But hopefully this open starts to open up that conversation about large scale work. And thank you very much for joining me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Immersive Experience Network Making Immersive podcast series, hosted by me, Dr. Joanna Bucknell, and produced by Natalie Scott. With thanks to our funders at Arts Council England. If you liked this podcast and want to know more about what we do, you can follow us on Instagram, which is at Immersive Experience Net, or find us on LinkedIn, so you can just search for the Immersive Experience Network. For news and updates on our live events, on our research and all of the other things that we do, you can go to our website, which is immersiveexperience.network. 
And if you sign up to our mailing list, then you won't miss out on a thing. And we do a lot. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. And I hope you dial in and listen to us again.